All right. That is one of my favorite worship songs. Um, and uh, sorry, my mask over here. It's one of my favorite worship songs. I, I rock out to that when I'm by myself, man. And uh, just the faithfulness of God is so incredible. Um, so if you're watching online um, and you're saying to yourself, uh, this dude doesn't have a voice at all, um, it is because of what happened last night. Um, I was there, I was able to rush the field with my mask on, of course, and uh, we had an absolute blast. I didn't get to sleep till about 4 o'clock last night, um, and I'm feeling on top of the world. So, uh, turn your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. Raise your hand if you've ever read the book of Ecclesiastes. All right, that's most of you. Um, we're going to be going through the book of Ecclesiastes uh, for the remainder of this semester. This book is pretty short, uh, just a few pages. And so one of the things I want to encourage you to do is read it over the next couple of months. Uh, to read it from beginning to end doesn't take longer than 20 or 30 minutes. Um, if you are really, really um, trying to focus on the, the words, then, then maybe it takes you 40 minutes, 45 minutes. Um, but I encourage you over the next uh, few weeks as, as we're studying the book of Ecclesiastes, perhaps consider making this your, your book for your, your daily quiet time. Uh, perhaps consider making this a book that you, in your own personal life, really dive into. Um, this is a strange book. It is, uh, on the surface, a depressing book, um, as we'll see. Um, but there is so much wealth here. And so I encourage you to join me as we're going through this series um, to, uh, uh, to really um, join me in reading this every day. Sigmund Freud was one of the most influential psychologists in history. Uh, born in 1865, Sigmund Freud's theories had a profound impact on the field of mental health and are still, some of them, very widely used today. He is referred to as the father of psychoanalysis, which is a treatment for mental illness, as well as an explanation of how the mind functions. Freud developed techniques for treating patients who were suffering from a wide range of psychological maladies. And these techniques included things like free association, like transference. He was revolutionary as well in the field of analyzing dreams, which he believed were expressions of the self-conscious mind or the unconscious self. And one of his greatest contributions to psychology was his theories regarding the unconscious self, the, the structure of the mind. And that structure that he came up with of id, ego, and superego were groundbreaking. If you recognize terms like neurosis, libido, repression, cathartic, and of course Freudian slip, uh, these are all credited to Sigmund Freud. Stephen Frosch described Freud's theories as, quote, one of the strongest influences on 20th century thought. Its impact is only comparable to that of Darwinism and Marxism. Henry Ellenberger surmised Freud's influence by saying that it permeated all fields of culture so far as to change our way of life and our concept of man. Even though there's been tremendous advancement beyond Freud in the years since, his theories laid the groundwork for an innumerable uh, number of modern theories and treatments. Another literary critic put it this way, Freud had no rivals among his successors because they think he wrote science when in fact he wrote art. His understanding of the human mind was unrivaled in his time, perhaps unrivaled arguably even today. And yet, Freud himself suffered from a wide range of neuroses and superstitions and fears. For example, 
uh, he believed that random numbers in his life were uh, sending secret messages to him. That in random numbers, there were secret messages for his life. For example, in 1889, he got a new telephone number. Probably upgraded to the latest iPhone at the time. His number changed. And his new telephone number included the digits 62. The, the digits 62 were at the end. And so Freud strongly believed that this meant he would die at age 62. He wrote a friend uh, a letter saying, I got this new phone number and it ends in 62. I'm convinced it means I'm going to die at age 62. As it turns out, he didn't die at age 62. He lived until age 83 when he died by physician-assisted suicide. Freud described himself as being neurotic, which is a term he himself helped to define to describe people with depression, anxiety, emotional instability, and cripplingly low self-confidence. And Freud himself said that neuroses were manifestations of anxiety producing unconscious material that is too difficult to think about consciously. He suffered from frequent blackouts. He was so addicted to smoking that even after 30 operations to fix damage done to his mouth by cancer, he refused to quit smoking. He suffered also from agoraphobia, which is a fear of um, extreme uh, crowds from public spaces and uh, from enclosed spaces. For a while, he even had a very serious cocaine addiction. So for a guy who seemed to know more about uh, the human mind than anyone, he himself has gone mad. Now, interestingly, Freud was not alone in this. Surveys reveal that mental health professionals have an extremely high rate of mental health issues as compared to the general population. One study done in 1993 compared female psychotherapists to other professional uh, women. And the therapist had a disproportionate amount of familial dysfunction, alcoholism, sexual and physical abuse, parental death, and psychiatric hospitalization. Other surveys reveal that more than 60% of mental health professionals have suffered from clinically significant depression at some point. Divorce rates are higher for psychologists than other uh, branches of medicine. Sadly, many mental health professionals take the same route as Sigmund Freud did, suicide. The suicide rate is double that of other medical professionals. One out of every four psychologists has reported having suicidal feelings. One in 16 have attempted suicide. Not surprisingly, rates of alcoholism and substance abuse are also much higher than uh, among other um, uh, doctors. So to sum it up, mental health professionals have a closer view to anyone else to the brokenness of the human condition. They spend every day looking at madness, and many of them go mad themselves. Rather than being able to offer a solution to the madness, they themselves are pulled into it. And even if they can provide some answers, they cannot change it. They cannot heal it. They cannot find meaning in the madness. Now, please don't take this as an indictment on mental health professionals or psychologists and our need for them. Okay? If you have never gone to counseling, I encourage you to do so. Everybody needs counseling. All right? But this is not just true of psychologists. It is true of almost all people. Most of us don't have the opportunity to study madness in detail. Most of us are are trying to find peace and meaning in our everyday lives. We're living paycheck to paycheck. We don't have time for psychoanalysis. We have jobs. We have families. We have hobbies, activities, goals, passions, pursuits. And we're busying ourselves trying to find meaning in every single one of those things. 
We may not have PhDs in psychology, but we can all see the brokenness. We can all feel the brokenness. We're all in the middle of the brokenness. But no matter what we try, romance, work, achievement, success, money, it always fails to provide the payoff. If anything, it just contributes further to the madness. It frustrates us because everything we think is going to bring us peace just rings hollow. This is how Freud put it. Freud said, life as we find it is too hard for us. It brings us too many pains, disappointments, and impossible tasks. In order to bear it, we cannot dispense with palliative measures. There are perhaps three such measures. Powerful deflections, which cause us to make light of our misery. Substitutive satisfactions, which diminish it. And intoxicating substances, which make us insensible to it. In other words, Freud said there are three ways, only three ways that we have to deal with the pains and disappointments in life. Distract yourself. Do something that brings temporary happiness and then keep doing it. Or get drunk and high to numb yourself from the pain. Hardly a positive outlook on life. But it feels pretty realistic. Today, we start a new series on the book of Ecclesiastes. And at first glance, it seems like a profoundly bewildering read. It seems to sound like an ancient Sigmund Freud, psychoanalyzing humanity and its endless experience of madness and offering little, if any, hope. But actually, what we will find here is that the preacher is going to show us the real solutions to our maladies. He's going to deconstruct false hopes and replace them with actual truth. He's going to take our eyes off of the here and now and place them on eternity. He is going to show us how to find meaning in the madness. So... Turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words will be behind me on the screen as I read. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, hastens back to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It's already been there. In the ages before us, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. 
I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. My heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Whew. Talk about bleak. <laughs> Talk about bleak. Like I said before, the preacher sounds a lot like Sigmund Freud, right? You know those people that get sadder and sadder the more and more they drink? Like, like there's fun, happy drunks, and then there are really sad drunks, okay? This guy seems like one of the really sad ones. Like, this is not the guy you want to go to a bar with and have a drink with, because he will just start philosophizing and depressing everyone around. Not the life of the party, as it seems. But when we take a closer look at this, I believe that what we will find here is actually quite remarkable, What we're going to find is that the preacher is like a gardener. And what he is doing is he's pruning. He is pruning away bad bad theology. He is pruning away the psychoanalysis. He's pruning away the destructive ways of thinking that we don't even realize that we have. Ecclesiastes aims to deconstruct all of the methods of finding meaning in things besides God. Let me say that one more time. Ecclesiastes aims to deconstruct all of the methods of finding meaning in things besides God. Deconstruct. So, let's start with some basic things, and then we'll start to get into some more specifics. The author identifies himself in verse 1, verse 12, and verse 16. So in verse 1, he says, The words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Then in verse 12, he says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Then verse 16, he says, um, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So, putting those pieces together, we see that he is son of David, king in Jerusalem, and wiser than anyone. And so, most scholars put these three pieces of, in, uh, of information together, and they say, okay, obviously we're talking about King Solomon. Now, there are some other very respected scholars who take a slightly different approach. Tim Mackey, for example, um, the brains behind the Bible Project, points out that this book is actually being narrated by a third party, by an author, Um, and this author, this narrator, has compiled these words and relays them to us. So verse 1 suggests that these are his words, the words of the preacher. So maybe not necessarily the preacher saying it himself, but these are the words of. And then in chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, it seems to go to third person. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote the words of truth. And so it seems uh, from those verses that, that there's a narrator, an author, who's taken the words of the preacher and is presenting them to us. So, the narrator has given us Solomon's wisdom. Or, Tim Mackey says, though I don't personally agree with this, that this narrator has written the book himself as a Solomon-like character. So, he's not necessarily purporting to be Solomon, um, but he's writing like Solomon. And he references the fact that there are other ancient texts that do this um, by writing uh, a third party as a like figure. Now, I don't agree with that interpretation because I think it's easier to just take the straightforward meaning from the verses that we read. 
and say whether Solomon is writing this himself or a narrator is relaying this to us, what we have here are the words of Solomon. So Solomon is the preacher. Now there are two key terms that he will use over and over and over and over throughout this book. And we're going to probably revisit these terms every single week that we're together studying this book. These two terms set the entire theme of the book of Ecclesiastes. And you probably already know one of them. Shout it out. Vanity. That's right. Or maybe your translation says meaningless. Vanity or meaningless is the key term in this book. The other is under the sun. So vanity and under the sun. Vanity, this word appears 38 times in this book. And the term under the sun appears another 30 times. So together this is 68 times that these two terms are used. And so Solomon is primarily writing about vanity under the sun. So if we don't understand these two terms, we're going to miss the entire point of the whole book. So let's start with vanity, meaningless. The Hebrew word is hevel, H-E-V-E-L, hevel. It can be translated as meaningless or vanity because that's ultimately the analogy that it's creating. But the literal translation of the word hevel is actually smoke, vapor, So if I were to be up here and I I lit a match, I light a match and then I blow it out before it burns the tip of my fingers, there'd be a little wisp of smoke that floats up from the head of the match and it would be gone within about five seconds. It's there now and then it disappears. That is a literal translation of the word hevel. And so what Solomon is doing is he's, he's using that to create an analogy. He's saying, look at this smoke. It's never the same way twice. It's impossible to grasp. It's here one moment and it's gone the next. It seems to be something that you can see and smell and experience, but then, just like that, it's no longer real. It evaporates as quickly as it appears. And that is what life and all of its activities are like. Hevel is inconsistent. It is an enigma a mystery, a a, a paradox. It is temporary and it is fleeting. It provides no guarantees whatsoever. There there are some things that are good, like wise living. Okay, he'll talk about this uh, uh, throughout the book. Wise living is a good idea, right? But wise living doesn't necessarily give any guarantee, which he says is hevel. And we're going to see why that's a good thing, but but we'll get there. Another useful analogy to picture the word hevel that I've seen is bubbles. Okay? This is going to be the analogy that I stick with. All right? My children love to blow bubbles. Right? Kids, you, you guys like to blow bubbles? Yes. So, sometimes they'll take that bubble wand and they'll dip it into the soap and they'll blow out and they get a nice big bubble that's the size of a baseball. And it'll float nice and slow and they can get lots and lots of enjoyment out of it. Other times, that bubble will pop the second they blow into that wand. Sometimes it's a a long series of, of smaller bubbles. Each one is different and each one has beauty. But each one pops the moment you try to grasp it. Bubbles are fleeting. Bubbles are inconsistent. Bubbles are mysterious. So, here's a helpful way to let this stick in your brain. Every time in Ecclesiastes you see the word vanity or meaningless, substitute the word bubbles. Okay, let's try it. Verse 2. Bubbles of bubbles, says the preacher. Bubbles of bubbles. All is bubbles. Verse 14. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is bubbles. 
striving after the wind. That immediately makes the book more fun, okay? It immediately makes this a much more enjoyable read if we just substitute the word bubbles, because now he seems a lot more fun. Bubbles of bubbles, all is bubbles. So that is Hevel, okay? He's not saying that life does not have any meaning whatsoever. He's not saying that life doesn't have any purpose. There is lots of eternal meaning. There is lots of eternal purpose, as we're going to see. But it's hard to grasp. It's bubbles. The second term is under the sun. And again, he uses that 30 times. And in using this term, he's being very purposeful. He's using it for a key reason. He's using it to set a contrast, a comparison. He's using it to show that if all we have is this 70 years or so under the sun, well, then it really is meaningless. But this life is actually not all that we have. We have eternity. But if we are operating under the assumption that this 70 years is all we've got, or if we give these 70 years too much importance, if we make these 70 years the point, we are bound to be disappointed. That's something that we're going to revisit in the third point of the sermon. But before we can get to the third point, we have to get to the first point. So... You're taking notes. Here's point number one. Progress is a myth. Everything is bubbles. Progress is a myth. Everything is bubbles. Let's read together once more in verses 1 through 11. Bubbles of bubbles, says the preacher. Bubbles of bubbles. All is bubbles. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What's the point of all this work? A generation goes, a generation comes. The earth remains forever. People live, people die. Earth is still there, life goes on. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. Every day, same thing. Sun goes up, sun goes down, another day. Repeat and repeat. The wind blows to the south and goes to the north. Around and around goes the wind. On its circuits, the wind returns. Everything is just on a cycle. All the streams run to the sea, but somehow the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Everything is just on a hamster wheel. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is never satisfied with seeing. The ear is never filled with hearing. What has been will be. What has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? No. It has been already in the ages before us. There's nothing new under the sun. It's all the same thing over and over and over. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Now, one of the main delusions that humanity operates under is the assumption that we are constantly progressing forward. This is one of the key assumptions of evolutionary theory. We began as building blocks of amino acids and minerals. Then we evolved into simple life forms. And then those simple life forms evolved further into more complex life forms. And on and on and on it went until we have primates. And then eventually humans begin to evolve from primates. And those early humans were, were nothing like us. They were, they were primitive They were animalistic. They they were barely human. But then we got better. Homo sapiens emerges. And since that moment, Homo sapiens has been getting better, getting smarter, getting more creative, getting more civilized, getting less barbaric, getting more inclusive, more advanced in every way. I mean, my goodness, we now have the iPhone 12. Look at how much we have progressed. Secular humanism operates with the assumption that we are ever improving, ever getting better, 
Barack Obama famously said, while the future is unknowable, the winds always blow in the direction of human progress. Now, ironically, secular humanism also denies the reality of objective truth. Thus, with no objective standard, who's to say if we're really moving forward or backward? Better or more progressive according to whom? According to what? How do we actually know what direction we're really moving in? But you might say, ah, look at slavery. We've progressed to the point in history where we no longer keep other human beings as slaves, where we no longer give them three-fifths personhood. See? Progress. We're getting better. To that, I would say, ah, but we slaughter millions of innocent babies and rob them completely of personhood and call it terminating pregnancies. No progress whatsoever. In these 11 verses, Solomon the gardener prunes away the idea that we are gaining value from anything that we're accomplishing. He gives us here two main enemies that nothing and no one can defeat. Time and death. Time and death. Time marches on and nothing really changes. What has been will continue to be. And every... All right, I got to tell you guys something. Those batteries that I just put in were good, but I put one upside down. So in my effort at speed, I messed up. That is a bad pit stop, and I'd lose the race. Anyway, as I was saying, time and death. Time marches on, and nothing really changes. What has been will always be. And every single person, regardless of how they live, what happens? They die. What do you gain? Bubbles. I have heard uh, Tim Mackey use the analogy of Sandcastle Day. Uh, Sandcastle Day is an event that takes place every year in Cannon Beach, Oregon. And on this particular day... Uh, people from all over the country, all over the world, who are sculptors of sand castles will show up to the beach. They'll register at a booth early in the morning, and then they're assigned a spot on the beach. And then they have a competition to see who can make the coolest sand creation. Okay, To call them sand castles is really a misnomer because it's not just castles. It is sculptures that are incredible and, and ornate and insanely detailed. Like These things are amazing works of art. And, and, and after hours and hours and hours of, of these artists out there, there are judges that go around and they take pictures and they decide who has built the greatest sand castle. And again, people from all over the world participate in this thing. But then, something happens every single sandcastle day. At the end of the day, evening comes. And do you know what comes with the evening? The tide. It's like clockwork. Every day, at the same time, the tide shows up. And every single sculpture... Regardless of how incredible it was, washed away. And the day after Sandcastle Day, you can walk on the beach and it's as if none of those incredible sculptures were ever even there. 
That's what he's saying about this. Everything that's accomplished washes away. And you can do the most amazing thing washed away. Your life gone like that. And you are washed away. Bubbles. There is absolutely nothing new. But we have the iPhone 12. Yes, but what is has already been. Android had that technology years ago. So, (laughs) and I'm an iPhone guy, all right? I'm not hating. Literally everything we build technology-wise, because we might go, well, look at all the technology we have. Technology is new. It's just reshaping of what has already been. I've heard it said that, that everything that we build is really just extending our five senses. It's really just uh, taking our five senses and extending them out further. We can hear things better. We can see things better. We can experience things tactile better. But it's not new. It's just an extension of what has already been. Humanity is the same today as it was a thousand years ago, all right? No matter what year it is, people is people, period. You can go back to any period in history, and what you will find are people. And those people are people just like we are people. Any idea that we have of progress is bubbles, We're not getting better, we're not getting worse, we're just living. And so anything, any idea that we have, that we can have meaning that's found in our contribution to human progress is bubbles, is bubbles. You can accomplish the greatest things imaginable. And you know what's going to happen right after you do? you die. And that great thing that you do, it rots. And somebody's going to take what you did and they're going to do something else completely different with it. And, and maybe, maybe your name gets remembered. Maybe what you did was significant enough to get in a history book. But probably not. But if you are lucky, if you are fortunate, You are going to be the answer on some kid's history test a hundred years from now. Whee! Hooray! Great job, Bubbles. If all we have is this 70 years under the sun, bubbles of bubbles, all is bubbles. That is the thing that Solomon is trying to get us to see. If all we have is this 70 years under the sun, it's bubbles. Any idea that we have of finding meaning in this, if this is the point, bubbles. That's exactly right. Thank you, Mighty Salt. Point number two. The advancement of knowledge is bubbles. Read uh, with me here in verses 12 through 18. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is bubbles, a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this too is a striving after the wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Now, this second point is a lot like the first point. So I won't spend a whole lot of time to belabor it. History tells us that Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. That is an incredible superlative. 
the wisest man in all of history. No person before and no person since has ever had the knowledge and the wisdom of Solomon. Okay, so we are not progressing. We're just all downhill from Solomon. Okay, Solomon was the peak of human knowledge and wisdom. Everything else is looking up to him. All right, so he was at the top of the wisdom game, never to be touched. He's the goat in terms of knowledge and wisdom. And what did Solomon call it? Bubbles. It's bubbles. Sigmund Freud contributed all this work to the understanding of the human mind. And what did it leave him? Suicidal. Solomon learned all that there was to learn. And it did not make him happier. It just gave him a clearer picture of how broken everyone is on earth. That's why he says, in great wisdom, there is great vexation. He who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. All the while, humanity is saying, uh, if, if we just learn more, if we just discover more, if we just advance in science more, then we'll find meaning. And they are trying to literally go to the ends of the galaxy to find something out there to give us meaning here. If we just progress enough, if we learn enough, if we discover enough, at some point we're going to find what it is that we're truly all about. And Solomon says, no, go anywhere in the universe and all you will find is bubbles. Bubbles here, bubbles there. Look at what he says in chapter 12, verse 12. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. College students, if that is not your favorite verse in the whole Bible, I don't know what is. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Amen and amen. Am I right? (laughs) He says, fine. Go ahead. Learn everything there is to learn. It is not going to make you happy. You'll just have a really clear picture of the broken world and the broken body that you inhabit. Now, up until this point, the picture seems pretty bleak. It it seems nihilistic. If we stopped right now, it would seem like all of us should just walk out and do what Freud told us to do. Distract yourself... Find some temporary pleasure and keep repeating it, or drink yourself into numbness. But that's not what Solomon wants us to do. He wants us to see the beauty in the bubbles. And it is only possible with eternity in our hearts. So point number three, eternity turns bubbles into beauty. Eternity turns bubbles into beauty. I want us to be very clear with how we read the book of Ecclesiastes. Because I I want it to be clear to us that Solomon is not saying that there is no meaning. Nor is he saying that work is bad. Or that knowledge is bad. Or that wisdom is bad. Or that any of the other things that he's going to bring up in in, in this book are bad. He's not vilifying that thing. He's vilifying finding eternal meaning in that thing. What he's giving us is perspective. What he's saying is that these things are not ultimate. And if we try to treat them as such, it is going to leave us with nothing but bubbles. But look at what he says in chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. What you're going to see is that we have to read chapter 1 with chapter 3. They speak to each other. Because there's a turning point here, especially in chapter 3, verse 11. Chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. 
He has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, this is contrasted with what he says in chapter 1, verse 13, where he says, It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So right there he says, it's an unhappy business that God has given to man. But here in chapter 3 he says, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time, in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them to do than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is has already been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. He says there, God has put eternity into our hearts. And what he has called us to do is to see what God has done from the beginning. This goes back to what I was talking about earlier with the term under the sun, which he uses 30 times in this book. And again, he's using it to set a contrast. He's using it to set up an argument and then to knock it down. He's saying, listen, if all that is happening under the sun, if this is all there is, it is bubbles. In other words, if this life is the point, then this life is pointless. Robert Short summarizes for us what Solomon is accomplishing in Ecclesiastes. He says, Ecclesiastes is essentially a kind of negative theologian. He's asking questions that can be answered only by a future revelation of God. In clearing the road for this revelation, he smashes any and all false hopes to pieces. Ecclesiastes is the Bible's night before Christmas. Ecclesiastes is human self-sufficiency stretched to its absolute limit and found sadly wanting. Again, if we, if we think that these 70 years under the sun is all we've got, we will be hopelessly disappointed. And so Solomon is pruning away this idea that we can find meaning or value or freedom or satisfaction or hope or life in anything under the sun. It's all bubbles. But is that all that there is? He says, no. He says, God has given us eternity. And he's taken eternity and he has placed it in the middle of our souls. Freud believed that if we could understand the human mind, we would be free. And so he broke it down and he said, personality can be summarized in the id, the ego, and the superego. The id is this base, instinctual, unknowable, primitive seat of desire. And then we've got the superego, which is the conscience. And, and then we have the ego, which is the conscious mind that we learn to control, that we use to, to mediate the id and the superego. But what Freud didn't realize, or, or, or maybe that he didn't want to admit, is that God has placed eternity in the id and the superego. And if we don't acknowledge that, our conscious ego will never find anything but bubbles anywhere it looks. With eternity in mind, though, Solomon looks at the things that he referred to as bubbles earlier and he calls them a gift. He, he points out eating and drinking and toiling and he says, this is God's gift. 
In verse 3 of chapter 1, he says, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So he's like, toil is bubbles. In chapter 2, he's going to talk about self-indulgence. And he's going to talk about eating and drinking. And he's going to go, eating and drinking is bubbles. But now, in verse 3... Uh, In chapter 3, verse 12, he says, I perceive there's nothing better for them to do than to be joyful and do good as long as they live, that they should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil because that's God's gift. Eat, drink, be merry, enjoy your work. With eternity in your heart, you are actually free to enjoy those things because those things are no longer the source of your satisfaction. The source of your satisfaction is God. And when you find yourself in him, then you can put the wand down into the soap and you can enjoy the beauty of the bubbles for as long as they last. And you can keep blowing more and more bubbles under the sun until they pop and you run out of soap and then you go and be with the Lord forever. Because what God has done, what what God has accomplished is never bubbles. What God has accomplished is never incomplete. It is never vanity. He says in verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Earlier he says, everything that you do is going to be washed away by the tide. Whatever you accomplish, it's going to be gone. You do something that you think is new and say, look, this is new. And people are going to go, no, it's not. And then it will wash away. Everything is bubbles. But what God has done endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. What God does, never vanity, never meaningless. It endures forever. It is perfect and it is perfectly complete he has already done the work of creation and so what we are called to do is steward creation for him we steward creation for him if we try to create our own world of meaning we will fall woefully short and the best that we will build is sand castles in the, stand, in the sand that will ultimately wash away in the tide. But if we stand on the eternal works of God, we get to enjoy the gift of every bubble that we get to blow. As it turns out, That's not so depressing after all. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your eternal work. Thank you that everything you do endures forever. God, thank you for giving us the opportunity to enjoy the gifts that we get to enjoy of eating and drinking and working and having relationships and having pleasures in this life. God, I pray that we would not try